Hello, this is Carl Bialik with the first episode of our new tennis podcast, and I'm here with Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you, Carl. Hey, I'm here with Jeff. I mean, I'm on a Google Hangout with Jeff, so apologies for any audio quality, but also take a moment to appreciate the wonders of the modern world that Jeff is across the Atlantic for me, and yet you can kind of hear what both of us are saying. Isn't that great? It really is great. If, if only we could figure out what time it is in either place, then then we'd really be onto something. And soon we're going to need to know what time it is in countries around the world for Davis Cup weekend. But we are now, I think, mostly focused on what happened the day before we were recording in Miami. What, what happened, Jeff? Well, you might have heard a little bit about this. Roger Federer was playing yet another final. Not only yet another final, but playing for the third time this season against Rafael Nadal. Um, I actually just watched the replay of the match this morning, and I actually didn't think Federer played quite as well as he did in the Indian Wells final, or the Indian Wells um, match against Nadal, rather. Um, but it was it was still impressive. Um, the fact that he he's out there, especially playing fresh after after two really tight wins uh, against Kyrgios and Burdic, Um it, it, it's amazing. It's, it's, it's tremendously impressive what he's managed to do. Have you, have you watched the match, Carl? Yeah, I watched it live. I rewatched some of it. I'm curious. I know sometimes when you watch matches after they're live, you watch them in sped-up mode. You, you have a, a hack to kind of skip between points. Were you able to do that this time, or did you soak in all the ball bouncing and butt-picking and sawdust hand-shaking? I, I skipped through all of that. So in this case, the match only took 11 minutes in total. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, it was, it, it generally cuts down to about 40% of, of the length of the match. So, so I'm able to get, I'm able to watch more tennis and, and less of everything else Rafa's doing and waiting for the crowds and, and, and changeovers and all that. Um, and, and in this case, it, it was interesting. Like I, I obviously didn't soak up all of the atmosphere that was coming from Miami, which is is hard enough when it's it's the morning after halfway across the world. Um, but but it sounded like the the crowd was really involved in this one. Yeah, and would you say they were pretty much pulling for Roger? That was kind of the consensus I heard. It's sometimes hard for me to separate that I'm getting from the live audio from the TV broadcast from the people I'm sitting with watching and then from the social media and media reaction after, which probably suggests I should be taking steps to tune out some of those separate channels. But yeah, it seemed like a very pro-Roger crowd to me. Is that is that what you got? Yeah, I think so. Um, it, it, that's generally a safe bet with just about any crowd around the world outside of maybe Barcelona uh, that, that is going to be pro-Roger. And, and especially after, after what he'd done the last few days, I think that the Miami crowd Obviously, they were they were even more pro Roger in that that Curios match, which is, which is a whole another whole another can of worms. Um, but just just talking about about the final, like going back to the Australian Open final, I I wrote a piece that got a lot of a lot of traction about um, about Federer's backhand. And and for those of you who haven't haven't read that, I I ran some numbers with um, with chart, shot by shot charting data from from almost all the Federer Nadal matches and and found out that Federer's backhand was, in the past, almost always in that negative. But 
starting in, in the Australian Open final, it was an, not just a slight positive. It was a, it was a pretty strong positive. And not only that, but the difference between how good it was in the Australian Open final and how bad it was um, the last time Federer and Nadal played in Australia, that was almost exactly the difference in the performance between when Nadal won a few years ago and when um, Federer won this time. So I think we, we've all been watching this backhand. We've been asking Federer about the backhand. We've been talking nonstop about the backhand for a couple months now. And I wasn't wowed by it, but but Carl, do you think that... Um, do you think that the backhand is still determining these th this new version of the head-to-head -head where Federer is somehow the favorite against Nadal? You know, it's so funny that, that you're asking me because I was hoping you were going to say, oh, and I just ran my numbers again on Federer's Indian Wells win and Miami win, and there's, here's where it shook out. Uh, without that, I'll tell you what my eyes tell me, which is, first of all, I agree. I think in Indian Wells, he was better than yesterday and probably better than the Australian Open, and in particular, the backhand. That that was maybe the first match or maybe the second ever that he played against Nadal where you could, with a straight face, say that his backhand was potentially his more dangerous ground stroke. Uh, it, it really seemed like he was he was ahead in points and not behind if he was having to hit a backhand, as long as it wasn't under enormous pressure. Whereas yesterday, it felt like it was somewhere between the strength that it showed in Indian Wells and some of the weaknesses it showed in the past, but think is such an interesting thing about tennis tactics, which is how players then adjust to what someone does. And it felt like Nadal was playing differently, was playing as if he were playing the peak version of Federer's backhand and not the somewhat shakier version we saw yesterday. So it still affected enough the outcome of the match without Federer having to be spectacular with it. And that's really such a powerful dynamic in, in tennis and in this rivalry in particular. We've seen so many times over the years Federer either avoiding Nadal's forehand to his detriment or if he hits to that side, hitting it so aggressively that he misses shots he shouldn't miss because he's worried about Nadal being able to make a play with his forehand. And it's among all the unpredictable things about this season, unexpected things about this season, the kind of micro thing that I find so surprising is seeing Nadal for the first time ever really reconsider a strategy that's won him so many big matches and titles in his career, which is going loopy and high or slicey and spinny on the serve to Federer's backhand. Yeah, I, to echo that a little bit, I, I, I agree. Thinking about yesterday's match, the final, that it didn't seem to me that Federer's backhand was as dominant as it had been, but it was clear that Nadal didn't quite know what to do. And, and in sort of a second order sense, it seemed that the backhand was winning points, but not by hitting backhands. The backhand was winning points by forcing Nadal to hit the kind of n more passive, non-committal shots to Federer's forehand. And I mean, nobody's ever won by uh, hitting very many shots to Federer's forehand. Uh, and that's ultimately what decided it, I think. And it, it was one of those rare times, like you say, that you, you could see Nadal rethinking something. And we're so used to watching him in control on the court, even if he's playing defensively, even if he's playing a little passively, you always get the sense that he knows what he's doing. And I did not get that sense. But to go back to the numbers a little bit, I, I do actually have the numbers. Um, the, the Nice. You tested me, and now we have the answer. <laughs> exactly. Um, the... So the stat I called BHP, short for backhand potency, and the idea is that if you hit a, if you hit a winner off the backhand, that that's plus one. If you hit a backhand that 
creates an error, induces an error, or sets up a winner on the next shot, that's plus half. So, so in the Australian Open, um, I came up with a rate stat over, I think, 100 backhands or something, which was um, 0.8. Wait, the potency also takes into account unforced errors and some other things, right? Exactly. Yeah. It, it, it's one of those things that I'm tr in trying to capture a very simple concept, it, it ends up getting a little bit complicated. But the idea is, if it, yeah, it's it plus one if you if you win the point on that shot, whether that means a winner or inducing a forced error, minus one if you hit an unforced error. So those two should cancel each other out. And then at the at the next level, if if you set up a winner on your next shot, that's plus point five. Uh, if you if you induce an unforced error, I think that's it's minus 0.5. I don't remember exactly the details I landed on, but the the point is is that if if a shot is neutral, it, it's not aiding you or hurting you, then it should be zero, um, no advantage or disadvantage. And in the past, Federer was almost always negative on the backhand against Nadal. There were a few instances. Uh, if you go back to some of the the Tour finals, indoor hardcore matches. Um, I think he got close to about um, plus ten. For what I was aiming for was a, a rate stat per match. So he was about plus ten per per match um, in in his best possible outcome. That one World Tour finals match. Um, I forget how many years ago, but twenty eleven at the Australian. Yeah, that was a big one. So so then at the Australian Open this year, he was plus. Eight, which is the highest he'd ever been on an outdoor court. I think by a lot. Like he'd been just marginally over zero uh, a few times in the past, but but never anything like this. So then, surprise, surprise. I'm at Indian Wells. He was just barely over zero. He's at plus one. So given the amount of statistical noise in a in a match that I think was like 98 points long or something, uh, that that's that's neutral. I mean, we we can call it plus one if we want, but it's it's basically neutral. Um, but then this really surprised me. I wonder, I'm wondering what you'll think about this, Carl. Um, yesterday in the final in Miami, it was plus 10, which is even, even bigger wow. as a rate stat than it was in Australia. Um, and any thoughts about that? Yeah, I think first of all, my general thought is this is a great reason to collect the numbers because I think I'm one of the more attentive viewers of tennis and I try to think statistically, but I was way off on both those matches. Um, secondly, I think oh, the, the flaws and fuzziness around winners versus force errors versus unforced errors, I'm probably a little too swayed by winners and because I remembered a lot of spectacular winners in Indian Wells and fewer yesterday, uh, that may have swayed me and also that I think something, now that I reflect back on yesterday's match more, something he did a lot of that I probably wasn't crediting as much because they weren't winners was he hit really aggressive backhands that forced Nadal errors and that counts, that's a point. But because Nadal got a racket on it or even tried to make a play but really was under pressure, it didn't feel as spectacular. And also conversely, I think Federer missed some backhands yesterday to them were ones that he should have missed because he was under enormous pressure himself because it was a really good Nadal shot, Nadal was coming into net behind it. There really were way more points I can think of where he won the point with his backhand than he lost it, even if I can't remember besides that ridiculous backhand down the line winner in the last game, too many he hit with it. Um, I, I, another thought I have going back to something earlier you said that I think is really 
astute and also relevant to this point of the fuzziness we get with these winners and error stats is how many you get from the forehand and backhand side are so influenced by what your opponent does when he's not totally in control of his shot and is trying to do something to, to kind of neutralize the point. And in the past, Nadal, if he was under pressure, would always pretty much, always pretty much, he would often usually direct the ball towards Federer's backhand. So Federer might actually get some backhand winners because he was getting weaker shots to his backhand. And yesterday, I think, on some of those weaker balls, they were going sort of middle of court or to Federer's forehand. So Federer piled up forehand winners yesterday. But it also means that Federer wasn't, wasn't hitting as many backhand unforced errors because he wasn't getting quite as many easy balls to the backhand. So often he was going aggressive with his backhand on a tougher shot. And that may also contribute to him having fewer really memorable great backhands, but also fewer really bad ones. Yeah, I think I think that's true. There, there, there's so many variables happening here, and you know, I, I think this stat is is really helpful, and it's a it's a step in the right direction. But it, it's only a step. I mean, the the tactical things we're talking about aren't even that complex, and and we don't really know how to capture in in a single statistic. Um, like like the fact that you know Federer might be dealing with more difficult balls on the backhand this week than he did two weeks ago in Indian Wells, um, and and the other thing to keep in mind is that since since there are so many variables and especially these last two matches have been relatively short, especially by by Federer and Nadal standards. Um, like I, I said, the, the plus one in Indian Wells is basically meaningless. It basically just means the backhand is neutral. Um, it was 127 points yesterday in the Miami final. So plus 10 is, you know, wow, really impressive. But if we, if we properly adjust for the amount of randomness in a 127 point match where, you know, most of the points are pretty short, so there aren't that many backhands to even measure, um, I'm guessing I'm guessing that's going to wash out as definitely a positive, yes, but a plus ten, like best ever, um, Federer versus Nadal backhand rate. Eh, it's probably going to end up quite a bit lower. Um, like maybe in the it will be adjusted down to like point plus three or plus four, where or you can point to it and say it didn't hurt him. It might have won him a couple points that he won, wouldn't have won otherwise. But but we can't we can't look at one number like that and confidently say. It really was a, a dominating shot yesterday because even though our eyes can mislead us, I think most people who watched that match yesterday aren't going to point to the backhand and say it was his execution on the backhand that really showed Nadal who was boss. Yeah, and not only is there noise in the overall number, but one of the things I always think about when playing or watching tennis is the noise in any one outcome. I mean, the backhand I described, uh, he was under pressure. He almost half volleyed it. Uh, the other way, he was moving towards his forehand, and then Nadal hit it to his backhand, and it was deep, and he didn't have time to react, and he just kind of flicked it up the line, and a slightly different motion by him, and it would have gone in the net, it would have gone wide, it would have gone long, it would not have landed perfectly in the corner. In fact, when you're hitting a ball right in the corner, especially without a ton of topspin, you probably misaim slightly because it's not a very safe place to aim for. So there's noise in every every moment, and then the, there's the overall noise. and there, you know, this measure, like you say, is a rough one. So, um, if there's, if he happened to get a lot of hit, a lot of forced errors that were just on the border between forced and unforced, then that's a worse performance than if the all his errors that were forced were really forced. So, so yeah, there is a lot of fuzziness here. I, I also wonder how much it even matters in the sense that 
players on every level. I wonder if you agree. I think they really do overreact to uh, past memories that can be skewed if they're not statistical, but are just based on you know what was most salient to you and also very recent memories. And what I mean by that, because that sounded really abstract, uh, is if Nadal, the narrative, and also remembers this way that Federer won Australia and, and Indian Wells because, and then Federer hits a couple of really good backhands yesterday, I think there can be confirmation bias and a little bit of, you know, his backhand really has changed and I really do need to change things up. And then what he does the rest of the match with the backhand is still important. He still hits a bunch of backhands, but the way Nadal adjusts could potentially be as important, much in the way that I just show the weaknesses in my own mind and kind of misguessing where fell in Indian Wells in Miami, Nadal could potentially do the same thing. And whether or not Federer's backhand is great in any particular match, it is, and that could affect the outcome too. Uh, do, you, do you think that players are able to overcome that and be totally rational, or do you think if a guy comes forward twice early in the match and hits a really good uh, backhand or hits a really good smash that that plays more than it should because of the small sample size? I think it depends on on what it is that, that is the small sample size. Like it, it, I think we're just in the example you gave, we we're talking about two different things. One. One is the idea that Nadal is aware of the narrative that Federer's backhand is suddenly a, is suddenly a threat. So that's something that came out of nowhere. Everybody was talking about it. I'm sure Nadal and, and Carlos Moya and the whole team, like they, they, they really thought about how to deal with that. Um, that that's something I wouldn't be surprised at all if they overreacted to that because it's it's still the same shot. I mean, Federer's been hitting beautiful backhand winners for his entire career. He's just hitting them a little more often and a little more aggressively now, which I mean, that might be the difference between number five and number one, but it's it's still a, a not that big of a difference. So I think it's very possible to overreact to something like that. I mean, when you can overhear on-court coaching visits in in women's matches, I think you hear that a lot. Like you'll hear a coach come down and hammer on on one thing, and that thing might be right. But in, in, in what I'm thinking is like, is that really all you want your player to be thinking about right now, or can your player just do 90% of what she was doing all along and just make that one little tweak? Maybe that's how the players are hearing it. I mean, they're operating at a level of of, of ability and and coolness under pressure that I can't even really fathom. So I don't know ex exactly what's going on beneath the surface of those conversations, but I suspect that, that, that it sounds like you're suspecting the same thing, that, that it's possible to overreact to a narrative as strong as the suddenly dangerous Federer backhand. Um, the contrast to that is, is the example I think you were giving right before I jumped in, which is that the you know, player comes forward a couple times early in a match and, and does some damage, either serving volleying or, or playing aggressively or you know a, a saber or something like that. I think that most players, especially at the elite level, they know well enough to just shake that kind of thing off. Um, and maybe they're having a bad day and they don't, but I, I think that virtually any top level player is aware that you, know, you can't continually win like that. Like you might win 55% of your of your points for a little while instead of 45%, but but 
you're going to ultimately get passed. Like you, your approach shots can't be that good or your serve and volleying can't be that good. You're on the other side of the court thinking, ah, oh, you got me these two times, but I'm going to get you next time. And unless somebody can, can consistently be, be that good for, you know, a set or something of, of solid, really aggressive play. I don't think an opponent is going to, to overreact to something like that. Even we talked about this a little bit um, at the time that, a match that was really interesting to me was the Murray Misha Zverev match. I was just um, thinking about that one. Yeah. Yeah. Back at the Australian Open, um, we remember that as a, I think the narrative has become like this was a huge career defining moment for Misha Zverev. On the other hand, it was a real letdown for Murray. The even bigger narrative is, ooh, suddenly aggressive tennis can flourish. But, you know, that was a really close match. And actually, Murray played pretty darn well. I think you commented at the time that that that, that was sort of the under-the-radar match of the tournament. And if you, if you were to pick out a random selection of 10 points or 20 points from that match, you could easily end up with a selection that made it look like Murray was just running circles around Zverev. Like you can see that with serving volleyers all the time. They'll go through patches where you know, they do what they're supposed to do. They hit good wide serves. They, they, they get to the net fast, they close it down and they just get passed. And someone like Murray or Djokovic and Dahl, like they can on a good day against a, a player who's not himself having a good day, they can do that nonstop, just pass, 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 pass. But the margins are so small. So it, it, it to me, it, it wasn't a triumph of serve and volleying. Like it, it's great to see a serve and volley you're succeeding. Um, but Murray was mostly doing the right stuff. He was just having a little bit of an off day. His variable was having a great day. And, and, and I don't think Murray's going to, you know, change his tactics even against Vera or against any, any really aggressive player in the future, because that's, it, it's just the way that, you know, the, the luck, the bounce of the ball goes sometimes that if, if you are that aggressive, you're going to generate lucky outcomes, sometimes really positive luck, sometimes negative luck, and you're going to end up with some wins like that. But it doesn't mean that the, the nature of the game has changed or the nature of the tactics you should you should use in general has changed. So that's interesting because I was thinking of that match somewhat from the opposite side. I also think we're, we're talking disagreeing on very small margins, but as I said before, that can be the difference in points and in matches. I, I don't think Murray drastically changed anything, but for instance, I think Zverev was so good on the smash that day that he's early, especially in the match, that Murray started losing points with lobs without Zverev having to do anything because he was trying to do too much with them, uh, or he was going away from the lob too soon. And I don't think it was a drastic change in his game, but it spelled like a number of tough points that Zverev won because... Murray hit a lob too deep. I mean, it was one of the few times I can remember that Murray basically didn't win a point with a lob against an aggressive net player. Murray has an incredible lob from both sides. Um, and I I remember the match as great up high, and later he didn't have to be great because he just wasn't even really challenged up high. Uh, by our discussing it endlessly, but more realistically, I'd love if someday... We actually had the numbers, and we could see, like, what does Murray usually do with his lob? What did he do early in the match? How often did he use it later? How does that compare to how often he would have used it in similar positions against similar players? Uh, was there something different about the spin he applied or about the power he swung on? Lobs don't actually come up that much in a typical match, even in a match against a servant volleyer, but 
also, like you said, especially for a four setter, that was an incredibly close match and a few points like that could have made the difference. So I don't know. I, I think they are incredibly strong mentally and they wouldn't say, okay, I'm just going to completely change my game, but I'd be surprised if they don't make at least very small adjustments reacting to early events in a match, especially against someone they haven't played much recently or yeah, I think playing very differently. I think it comes down to how we define what's a what's a smart adjustment and what's an overreaction because it, we're talking about them a little bit interchangeably here. That like I think True. I think we would all agree that small adjustments are the way to go. It would be it would be stupid no matter who you're playing against to go out with a game plan and stick to that exact game plan no matter what. Um, but obviously you can go too far on the other side. And I think that's what that's what we're saying a little bit about about Nadal with the Federer backhand, that maybe he was he didn't know what to do without having a, a go-to defensive direction for for any any shots he needed to kind of regain his balance or just get back to neutral in a point. Um, so he ended up hitting some weak shots to the Federer forehand, which isn't and isn't something you'd ever do uh, under normal circumstances. So so the question is like how far is too far? How much of an adjustment is appropriate? And and like you say, without really detailed granular data, that's going to be a tough question to answer uh, answer with any kind of precision. And I, as you were talking about the Murray lob, it turns out that is a match that that we charted. So uh, we have the the shot by shot breakdown for that. And again, this this isn't going to be as precise as you want because I mean, there's all kinds of different situations for lobs um, from very defensive to a slightly more offensive situation. So what we've got is in the Zverev match, Murray hit 26 lobs, um, three of them were winners, which actually is exactly tour average. 7% of his lobs were winners. Um, that's Murray's career average in the 100 plus matches we've charted. And it's also ATP tour average. Um, and overall, he won, he, he won the point on six of those on six of the lobs, not necessarily um, ending the point with it, but ultimately winning the point. So six of them turned out in points won, 20 of them were in points lost. And that is a little bit below average. Um, ATP tour average is, is that 30% of lobs come in points that the, the player won. Um, Murray's actually a little, a little bit lower to my surprise. Um, Murray's at 27%, which could just be an artifact of the, of, of his high level of competition. It could be that he, he, he tries lobs more, any number of reasons for that. I think he just gets his racket on balls and gets them in, in cases that guys wouldn't. That's, that's my hypothesis. Yeah, that's definitely possible. And a difference between 30% and 27% isn't enough to make a big deal out of, but 23% is a little bit lower. Um, Pretty much in line. But it, it, yeah, it's not it's not overwhelming. Um, so yeah, so, to, that's a good point. so even something that I thought was a major storyline. Although I also think Zverev really hugs the net, and it should be a tactic that should work. But also, he's really good at, at backing up and smashing. So yeah, I mean, you know, even after the fact, like it's hard to know if if Murray if Murray's lob was off or if Zverev's smash was particularly good. Uh, and I could be overreacting to Murray tactics, but in emotions and like yelling loudly. <laughs> after some lobs failed that it every time it wasn't working when in fact six times it worked. I wonder if he knows that set. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, that's certainly three times it, it worked overwhelmingly. Um, the other three times yeah. we'd have to dig into the data to know whether it just kept him alive or was actually uh, more positively effect, uh, effective. 
But I know, Carl, you and I, we, we've talked enough in the past to know that we could spend the next three hours talking about <laughs> Federer, actually just Federer, but um, probably just Nadal and probably just Murray. But we don't really want to test that for episode one of the podcast. Maybe episode two, we can go for a double episode. But I, I, I think that, that my life would be better if I spent a little more time talking about women's tennis in general. Um, so I hope the podcast people will agree will be better if we talk a little bit more about women's tennis. So totally, um, totally not smooth segue. Um, <laughs> one thing I, I never, I never wrote this during Indian Wells or Miami. I, I, I it was one of those things I kept thinking about when I was away from my computer, but you know, we talked a lot about the big four in men's tennis and we were missing the big four or missing half of the big four, Murray and Djokovic for most of the last month. Um, but in, in in another way, even though we saw some really good WTA tennis in the last few weeks, a, a main theme was the players who weren't there. And and you could you could say that there was sort of a big four that wasn't there uh, on the women's tour as well. I mean, obviously we're missing Serena, and when Serena's not there, that's almost a, a storyline in itself. Um, we're missing Petra Kvitova, who um, who was hurt last fall. Um, we're missing Sharapova, attacked. obviously. Yeah. Who was attacked? Yep. Um, we're missing Maria Sharapova, who also <laughs> her being gone is a storyline in itself. And we're missing Victoria Azarenka, who I, I believe was the defending champion in, in Indian Wells. So we have and these who four has, players. Has had a child or is expecting? Has had a child. Has had um, a child. And all, has had a child already back on the training court. Um, she posted a picture a couple weeks ago that um, it, it's right. not. It's not fair that anyone could possibly look like that so quickly after having a baby. Um, but it, it means she looks like she could walk back onto the match court tomorrow. Um, and she probably could win a few matches tomorrow, but she'll, she'll be back pretty soon. I don't know what her timetable is exactly. But we have these these four four big name players, major, all Grand Slam champions, major resumes, all missing. So what we have instead are a lot of players who have sort of been lurking around the edges for the last few years who are, are picking up the slack. So this, this last weekend we had Wozniacki losing in the Miami final to Johanna Conta um, and back in Indian Wells, Elena Vesnina, actually, the big surprise, won in Indian Wells. So there's a couple different factors, I think, going forward. One is that the big four, for lack of a better term, on various timetables, they're going to come back and they're going to assert themselves to various degrees. The other factors are switching over to clay. Um, and none of those three players are really known for their clay court prowess. So, so Carl, I know this is a, an almost unforgivably vague question, but, but what happens now on the women's tour? We, we, we've seen some players come forward, but they aren't the ones we would expect to win over the next few months. What do you expect from, from the women's clay court season? I think one thing to keep in mind throughout the clay court season is not to make too much of the lead-up tournaments. I mean, that's probably always true in the Australian Open on the men's side. And the women's side, I think, was won by players who hadn't done anything in the lead-up tournaments or hadn't even played them. Um, but particularly this year, because you do have this this crop of players who... Uh, Petra's timetable is unclear, and we're talking still, when's the soonest she could come back? Like, later this year? Yeah, I, I don't think we even have a timetable yet for her. So it'll it'll be several months. She's she's out for quite a while. Yeah, I mean, I think she she was she was stabbed by an attacker in her home and uh, has has had a good recovery, but not still um, not expected to be back soon. But the other three could be 
Serena doesn't really need to or seem like she particularly wants to play a lot of tour events outside of the slams and also is good enough to to just to just get to a major and contend and probably be the favorite. Uh, Sharapova's been so good on clay the last few years. Azarenka not as much, but she really pushed Serena in a French Open match, I think a couple of years ago, um, and certainly could could win some matches. But if they start coming back, uh, not before the French Open, their best right away, but I think the French Open, they would still, no matter what they've shown or how much they've played going into it, any of them in the draw would be among the favorites. And as you say, Wozniacki, Vesnina, we're not really going to expect them. I don't think Kanta's done much on clay. Uh, I don't think we're going to expect them to perform, even if they didn't have some top rivals coming back to the tour. So I think we can see some really fun, wide-open lead-up events and then much at all going into the French. Yeah, I, I agree. It's certainly going to be be unpredictable. Uh, what what do you make of of Kerber at this point? She's she she got her number one ranking back, but it was kind of anticlimactic since she didn't end up being um, being a factor in in, in the finals in either week. Um, she's she's play. I mean, she can play well on clay. She's not known as being a clay specialist, really. Um, do, do you where do you see her playing at? Like, do you think she could she could hold on to number one for several months? Do you think she's she, she's more suited to being like sort of like a, a top five but not number one player? I mean, it's it's bringing back even though she won two slams last year and had an incredible year and a lot of other finals. Uh, her play so far this year is unfortunately starting to bring back some memories of debates about number ones, more so on WTA, but I think it's come up on both tours. You know, is she really number one? Is Serena Williams number one, but just not playing enough events? Uh, you could kind of talk about the men's side in the same way too. I think Murray's had a slightly better start to the year, but not by much, and he's number one by a mile. So on both sides, we have number ones who aren't really playing like it. Uh, in Kerber's case, you know, I've seen a, a bunch of her matches and I can't really point to any one obvious thing that's explaining why she's struggling so much more. Uh, it seems like everything is just slightly worse. Maybe she was too worn out by all the obligations uh, attendant to being number one at the end of last year and having such a strong season. But, you know, I, I really found tiresome and don't want a return to the Wozniacki number one debates and Safina number one debates. The ranking is one thing, slams are another thing. But She's not, it's not even like she's piling up points this year away from Australia. She's just using the points she banked last year, plus the idleness of Serena Williams and the kind of spread out success of the rest of the tour and the absence of a few other notable rivals. And that just makes the ranking feel particularly irrelevant. So I'd say on both sides, on both tours, the ranking feels less relevant than it has in a while. I mean, it, it People sometimes call it an entry system, and it certainly has affected seedings and created some interesting matchups on both sides early in tournaments. But in terms of who's number one versus number two versus number six, uh, and, in the, and in the WTA's case, you know, a number of players outside the top five or top ten making big finals, uh, it doesn't feel like it means a hell of a lot right now. Yeah, I, I agree, and I think that's that's another factor. Another factor, in addition to what you mentioned, is is the variety of surfaces, because some some of the players who um, who you might expect to play particularly well on clay are, are are kind of far outside the top right now. Like 
means Sarah Arani's time may have passed, but on clay, she's probably better than whatever her ranking has fallen down to. I've, I've lost track actually, but I, that it's, it's far, unfortunately. Yeah. 102 before, I don't know if it changed today, but last week it was 102. Wow. So I, I'm guessing she's a little bit better than that on clay right now. Um, even even if you're not an Iranian fan, even if you think she's she's in the decline, like she's more of a threat than that. But going back to Kerber for a second, she she was a bit of, of Jekyll and Hyde on clay last year. I forgot how extreme it was. I remember her her winning the Stuttgart title um, in April. I'm sure she'll be back there to to defend that. Um, but then after that, she lost in the first round in Madrid in Rome and in Paris at the French Open. Um, and that, that Paris loss was to Kiki Burton's, which is it has got to hurt. But it, as you were talking about... In when, a year when she made the final of the other three majors, yeah. Yeah, um, it, it was a, a crazy season, and you could you could write it off as just not knowing what she's doing on clay, except it's Tuckart title. It's a, a little different condition since it's indoors, but before that she, she'd she beaten Halep in a, a Fed Cup match, also indoors, but still on, on clay against a, a very good player on clay. Um, and then, and then three, three really bad losses to uh, Strikova, um, Bouchard and Burton's to finish the clay season. You were talking about how, you know, there's all these factors pushing players up, pushing players down that might not really reflect how good they're going to be, uh, and threaten in a given week. Um, Kerber has the opportunity to, to really pile on some points here. She doesn't have to you know, go and win the French open or anything. She could, she could pad her lead simply by, you know, making the semifinals of the French Open, which I think is maybe a bit of a stretch, but depending on the draw, very possible. Yeah, and like in the Wozniacki number one era, even if she piles up weeks this year without winning a slam, she will, she will have had the two slams last year. Uh, what, what really makes the number one, the weeks at number one leaderboard feel like a sideshow in the WTA especially is where you have something like Wozniacki with number one than Venus Williams or year at number one that Venus Williams I don't think had. Um, whereas Kerber, you could say this is just the sort of lagging effect of a 52-week ranking. She is now being ranked according to how she was playing last summer and fall. Yeah, well, this year. I, I think one thing that is striking to me about her clear record last year is she was quite good last year in general. I think Clay was the most extreme at either losing early in the tournament or going really deep and getting a lot of points. I mean, if you matches, but you win all of them at one tournament, that gets you way more ranking points than if you win one round at each tournament. And this year, she's really struggled to go deep at any tournament. So I think if she can get some extreme results on Clay, even if she has some early exits, and if Serena Williams doesn't play much or the French, I think she's entered in Madrid, but that doesn't necessarily mean she'll show up. Uh, then, yeah, Kerber could be number one for a while, at least until the points start coming off uh, Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. Yeah, it, it, it is interesting how, um, especially in the, the climate right now, uh, that, that that you can have such a disconnect between how a player is playing at any given time and where their ranking sits. Um, the one player we haven't talked about who's very interesting to me in – in, in terms of WTA rankings is, is Karolina Pliskova. Um, we haven't mentioned it all, but she was the only woman to make the semis in both Indian Wells and Miami. She lost to Kuznetsova in 
two tie breaks in Indian Wells in the semis. She lost to um, she lost to Wozniacki in a pretty weird match in in Miami. She she won the first set, a pretty tight first set, seven five, and then um, and then really just went away. And, and Wozniacki walked right over her six one six one in the last two sets. But Plitschka has been probably the most consistent player on tour this year. I mean, quarterfinals in Australia. She won in Brisbane um, in lead up to Australia. She made the final in in Doha, beating or she won Doha rather, beating Wozniacki there. So besides one first round loss, she she's been in the running in in every tournament, and she's sort of the. I mean, it, it it feels wrong to call someone who's number three in the world under the radar, but she feels like the kind of kind of hipster pick as a future number one right now. Um, what what do you think, Carl? In turn, is at the end of the year, could we see Pliskova as the number one? Yeah, I I think somebody maybe Ben Rothenberg pointed out that she could uh, if she had won Indian Wells in Miami and if things had broken her way, she could be number one right now. And she came awfully close. I mean, that's an example of two very successful tournaments for her that don't look didn't have as much impact on the rankings as they could have because she got to the semis in both instead of winning one and, and exiting a little earlier in the other. Um, but she's looked really consistent. And for someone who's such a big hitter, um, that hasn't always been true before. But, you know, I think you could really go back to uh, the U.S. hard courts last summer and, and track a really good run for her, obviously, including the upset of Serena in the semis at the U.S. Open last year and the run to the final. Um, and a very, very close final it was against Kerber. Um, yeah, I mean, I think she's, you could say, of the active players right now, the real number one, the biggest threat. Um, and if she had capitalized a little bit more this season, she she really would be number one right now. But yeah, in practice, I think you'd much rather play Kerber now than play play Pliskova. Yeah, I, I would agree. And and it, I just checked as, as you were talking. She is she is number one in the race um, by a slight margin over Kanta and Wozniacki. But that's weird. If you'd said that at the beginning of the season, we'd be looking at Pliskova, Kanta, Wozniacki as the top three in the race. I don't know at the beginning of April, but yeah, she's there and there's, there's little reason to think that she'll, she'll go away. I mean, she might not, she might not stick at number one, but, um, but, but she'll, she'll be around. And I, I've really, I have been impressed with her. Like you mentioned, you can, you mentioned starting a time frame at the hard court season last year. Um, it's easy to think of her as a one dimensional player. And certainly if you go back a couple of years when I started watching her seriously, um, she did seem like a serve bot. Like she'll, she'll watch shots go by. It seems like she's kind of low energy sometimes. Um, she'll hit really clunky errors sometimes, but she's done an excellent job of cutting all that down. I mean, she she really looks like she's matured as a player. Um, the serve is obviously always going to be there. She's going to have one of the one of the best serves in the game. Uh, but 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 the whole game has really come around. I think she's gotten tactically smarter and uh, and also in. This is something that you and I talked about a lot, Carl. Is is she she plays? I think the right tactics for the game she has. Uh, she's very aggressive on the return. Like I, I've seen matches where it, it looks like she's basically just like Dustin Brown style going for a winner on every single return. Which when she misses, it it looks dreadful. It looks like she doesn't even know how to play tennis. But you can you can see why she does it when it works. I mean, I, I'm overstating the case a little bit here because sometimes she's much more much more conservative and 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 does what she needs to do to get the ball back in play. But I mean, it, it, she'll go for some pretty big swings on on serve returns, and 
if you're Carolina Pliskova, you can, unless you're playing Wozniacki in the semifinals of Miami, apparently, you can count on holding serve most of the time, certainly more often than almost any other WTA player can. But it, what's tougher, obviously, is breaking serve. But with enough big swings, like, yeah, you'll look stupid sometimes. But all you've got to do is break once or twice per set. And if you're Pliskova, you've got the serve to back it up. Right there, one or, one or two breaks will, will make the difference. Yeah, and it's also taking advantage of the relatively weak second serves that she's often going to be facing, uh, taking advantage of you know a good position in the court. Shorter points favor her. Uh, her movement is, I think, good, but not one of her biggest strengths. So the shorter the point, the better, the more she's conserving energy for service games. I mean, I think there are a lot of big servers who would benefit, and, and big hitters in general, who would benefit from trying to end the point one way or another with the return. Uh, and as you say, if it, it doesn't need to work even 50% of the time or probably even 40% of the time for it to be a good tactic, if you're going to win the point more often that way and also win it more easily. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just, just, we're basically just blind guessing at this point, but just to, to sum all this up in, in one or two names, what's, who's your French Open pick right now for the women? Serena Williams. Serena Williams going with the conservative choice. <laughs> generally generally pretty she's safe. If you know, she's injured. She's 35. I don't know. I think it's a big risk. Yeah. Well, I, I feel like it's always the conservative choice to, if, if oh, somebody asks you, you know, total cop out. Totally. Kidding. Just, just go with Serena. Um, it, it's tough to argue with that. You know, look, looking at the list, it's, um, it, it, it's tough to imagine someone playing better than Serena. So the, the question is really, is really mixing all of those considerations. Of course, Serena could be injured and not play. She could be slightly injured and show up and lose to someone random in the second round. Uh, after talking about Pliskova, it's kind of fun to imagine her winning a slam, but it seems like it would be a stretch for Roland Garros to be that slam. Um, as you know, I'm I'm a crazy devoted Samara Halep fan, and I would love to see see Halep get back in there. She's she's been pretty shaky this year. It's tough to it's tough to pick her, but I think I would have to. Pick her anyway, um, both both out of you know, blind allegiance and because the, the, the one of the things I love about tennis always is 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 when when sort of the structure of a generation breaks down a little bit and and it, everything gets kind of chaotic because we, we we've been through plenty of years where you know that if Serena shows up she's probably going to win. Um, we've we've been through this for more than ten years now on the ATP side with the men who if they're in the draw they're going to win. But right now, and then anything could happen. And even if it's hard to really believe in Simona Halep the way she's been playing this year, um, I'd like to think that if something random is going to happen at the French Open, I'd like to think it's it's Simona who's going to come through and take advantage of the chaos. Um, it's it's her best chance of the year, at least. I'll, I'll give you that. Yeah, I I think so. Uh, what do you think on the men's side, Carl? I was already preparing for that question, but I'm, I'm pretty torn between Djokovic and Nadal. Um, but I think just based on strength so far this year, uh, I'm going to go with Nadal. Huh, okay. I'm, I'm going curious. No, I'm joking. I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> saying, I'm not saying curious. Um, I'm going to predict Kyrgios will fall down at least once at the French Open. Um, he'll probably hit between seven and 50 tweeners. But that's the only <laughs> prediction I'm going to make. Um, that's interesting. I, 
I, I hesitate even to make a prediction. I mean, obviously, the, those are the, the two biggest names, I think, the, the ones that the numbers would favor um, going into the clay court slam. Um, you have to wonder what, so what do you think, Carl? I, I was mulling this over before we started talking today, that we have this weird ATP world where it kind of feels like Federer and Nadal are back at the top. Um, and in a sense, they are. They played the one slam final. They just played a, a master series final. Federer's won basically everything this year. Um, but they they haven't had to beat Djokovic and Murray to get there. So we had one narrative in the beginning of January where it was Djokovic versus Murray for all the marbles. I mean, they, they were fighting over number one at the end of last year. They played the final in Doha to open this year. So it, it was all set for this, you know, this like season long grudge match between Djokovic and Murray. And, and now they're gone. So it, it, it isn't like anyone's overtaken them. It's like they've just kind of taken a break. So, I guess we don't really know the the severity of the injury problems they're facing, and and Djokovic was having some what felt like commitment issues even before uh, before missing Miami. But what do you think? Should should we be thinking of Federer as the best player in men's tennis right now, or should we be thinking of it still as basically a two man race between Djokovic and Murray, which will res- resume when they both get back on court? I think. We're having we're we're seeing them as being missing and injured because they are in Miami, but they seemed mostly healthy, and we saw enough shakiness. Now, yeah, Murray in the Zverev match, uh, that was Zverev playing lights out more than Murray playing poorly, but just other losses that weren't great, um, or or wins that were tough for both of them uh, before before getting to Miami and, and leaving Miami. I mean, Murray looked healthy to me against Pospisil. He just didn't look that good in his in his first round or his first match that he played at Indian Wells and lost in straight sets. Djokovic had the loss to Istomin. He had two losses to Kyrgios in straight sets. Kyrgios is a very good player, but Djokovic, in the form he was showing when we were thinking of him as unbeatable, would have won those matches and probably broken serve or gotten some break points. So... I don't want to overreact to the early part of the season, especially with Nadal. He hasn't beaten that many top players. Uh, he, he had a couple of, he's had three top 10 wins, I think, Monfils, Raonic, and, and Chilich, but none of those guys feel like, you know, really strong members of the top 10 or really tough opponents, at least for Rafa. But he's winning the matches he should be winning pretty consistently in a way that Murray and Djokovic suddenly aren't. I, I, I know this could feel like recency bias, but... I'm not picking Nadal here to win Wimbledon or the U.S. Open. I'm picking him to win the French. So it's only in that sense that I'm picking him. I do think at the end of the year, Murray and Djokovic are going to be right back near the top of the rankings, and it wouldn't really surprise me if they were one and two again at the end of the year, even though they have a lot of ground to cover. I do think Federer is the best player right now, non-clay division, but the guy has said basically he's going to skip all the clay season except the French, and he's also had some really close wins that – if they'd gone the other way, we'd be talking about him really differently. So I don't see him as a real contender at the French, but picking Rafa at the French never feels risky to me. And in fact, if he hadn't pulled down the third round last year, I would have liked his chances last year too. Yeah, that's all That's all reasonable. Um, I have to go with Djokovic because if I'm not making a silly forecast, I, I have to go with the algorithm. I, I feel <laughs> Unless you have a really good reason and – I mean, Nadal on clay might qualify as a really good reason, but 
I, I just haven't been convinced with the way he's been he's been playing these. I guess we've mostly just focused on his his matches against Federer, but he had he hasn't looked like the Nadal of old. So if if the Nadal of old shows up, I mean that's a, that's a big vague untestable if. I'm sorry, but obviously that guy can win Roland Garros against anybody. But I I don't think that's the Nadal we're seeing this year. So I mean my heart's not in it, but if I have to pick somebody, I, I'm going with Novak. Uh, but yeah, and two things we should clarify in these picks are, one, we're picking, like, who's the most likely, but I think probably for all of our picks for WTA and ATP side, we're, neither of us thinks our pick has a, even a 50% or probably even, like, a 40% chance of winning. At least I don't for, for either of mine. Uh, no, I, I, still- I do. I, my, my picks win about 98% of the time. Oh, well, yeah. gamblers, listen up. <laughs> yeah. No, actually, the... the I wrote an article about this a few years ago, and I don't remember the exact conclusions. But but usually when I when there are t- uh, tournament forecasts on Tennis Abstract, which I put up for pretty much every tour level event, um, if you look at the slams, or even this applies almost the same to Indian Wells and Miami, but certainly for the slams with 128 draws, um, usually the num the the, the top ranked player, who's usually the top seeded player, but wh- whoever's the top in the ranking system, I'm using. Uh, is usually has about a 28% chance of, of between 25 and 30% chance of winning the tournament. Usually about a, 28%. Uh, well, I've, I've seen a lot that are 28. It's, it's, it, it does come okay. up a lot, but yeah, about 28.7, 28.75, somewhere in there. Um, but then the study I did a few years ago was looking at if, if you took the, just those players, forget about all the other, the, the other, um, intermediate probabilities of winning each match and, and who else is in the draw. Just look at uh, who the top ranked players were, who the top ranked players were by ELO or whatever ranking system you want to use and see how often those players went on to win the tournament. I think it worked out to more like 40%. Um, so so it could be that, that my system is a little bit too conservative. It could be that those numbers are influenced by the fact that we've had this um, this aberration in history of, of, of when the number one players are unusually dominant, but but that's your range. So if if somehow Carl or I are as good of, of forecasters as the the best the best conceivable rating system, let's say, um, then yeah, we're pro- we're talking maybe forty percent and maybe not that high. So yeah, to, to your point, where we're not saying anything's going to happen because, heck, if we know, I certainly don't know what's happening. I don't, I don't know what I'm doing later today, let alone, um, <laughs> let alone who's winning the French Open. And you the know, I, I've got, I, yeah, I've. We both have a lot of numbers to support our arguments, but that doesn't mean they are, are particularly certain. Yeah, and my other caveat was also going to be relatedly that if Rafa if I'm picking Rafa to be the most likely person as of now, or most likely man to win the uh, French Open, I'm I, I'm not also necessarily picking him head-to-head against Djokovic. I, I think that if they meet, I would probably favor Djokovic. I think Rafa has less of a chance of being upset by someone else. That's that's kind of my my um, heuristic. Yeah, and that, that's something else that, that influences that question of... of comparing human forecasts or let's say pundit forecasts with with what the algorithms say is that if, if you look at the the last few decades of, of professional tennis like 
there, there are lots of upsets. We don't remember them all. Um, we tend to remember the most extreme ones, but if we don't remember all the times that, you know, the number four seed lost in the fourth round or the number three seed lost in the quarterfinals. But that's I mean, big four notwithstanding. That stuff happens a lot. So the idea of Nadal winning the French Open doesn't mean he's going to, you know, beat, I don't know, Nishikori in the quarters and then Murray in the semis and Djokovic in the final. I mean, that would be impressive if he did it, but he might not have to do that. He might, he might have to beat... I don't know, Bautista Agu in the quarters and then Kyrgios or Isner, I don't know, in the semis, and then maybe you have to play Djokovic or Murray in the final. But there have been plenty of instances, I mean, Federer's French Open included, where a player gets that slam because the draw just opens up. And I mean, that could be why we're talking about Federer so much. I mean, if the, if the draw had played out differently in Australia, um, you know, Federer would have been wouldn't have been undefeated for as long as he was, which you know, didn't turn out to be very often. But I mean, if, if he had lost in the quarters or something in, in Australia, then it'd be a very different conversation we're having today. Yep, and Federer and Nadal have not played Djokovic or Murray this year, so we we really don't know yet to what ex- how those matchups would shake out given the unexpected place all four are. So I think we should look forward to that and lots more in the clay season and lots more conversations on this new podcast. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Thank you, Carl. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon.